Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. If you like something that you hear, or you just like the show in general, connect with us. We love hearing from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or HH Talk Radio, or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Today we're talking about a subject that many people will say is a very unhappy one. And while the conversation we're about to have isn't particularly happy, the notion that we can control as many aspects of our life as possible is what makes many people quite happy, in fact. But the reality of it is there is one aspect of life that we can have more control over that we typically have not focused upon, and that is the end of our lives. How do we want the exit, the final exit, to happen. And with me today is Dr. Angelo E. Volandes. He's a physician and researcher at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. He's witnessed far too often the unnecessary suffering of patients and their families faced they face when confronted with difficult end-of-life decisions. The solution, he knows, is not the latest technology, the most effective powerful and empathetic tool a doctor can offer at this stage of life is perhaps the simplest. And that is the topic of our conversation. That is the conversation. Dr. Volandes, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Likewise, this subject matter makes people wince. However, once we get started talking about what the end of our lives 
could look like, oftentimes we find ourselves with elevated emotion. And I always find that very interesting. Well, it's true. I mean, this topic is a, is a difficult topic, but what I argue in my book is it's an important one. And the reason is that uh, despite the fact that most Americans don't want to die in a hospital, they don't want to die tied up or tethered to a machine, most of Americans are still dying in hospitals, often tethered to machines. So I'm hoping that people realize that if you're not going to have this conversation, this is what's going to happen to you. Doctors are going to assume that you want everything done, even if you have an advanced illness. And so if all of us start having this conversation, we'll be able to respect and honor your wishes um, at the end of life. That's my hope with the book. And mine as well. And, and there's an astounding statistic, and that is that two-thirds of Americans die in healthcare institutions tethered to those machines and tubes that you're just speaking of. Absolutely. Those are the facts. So even though 86% of Americans don't want to die in a hospital, when it comes to dying, about two-thirds of people over 65 end up dying in some sort of healthcare facility. It's that misalignment between what people want and what they get that really concerns many of us in healthcare. How does one begin the conversation? Tiptoe into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I tell people this doesn't have to be sort of a down conversation. Look, we're all going to die. You know, that's a fact. Uh, I'm going to die. You're going to die. And so every good life deserves a good ending. So all I'm asking is for people to have an open discussion about what's important to them. You know, I'm not only writing this book as a doctor, I'm actually the son of a person, my dad, who has a serious illness. So let me tell you how I started that conversation with him. Um, my dad has multiple diseases. Um, they're terminal. And so I asked him, I was like, Dad, what's a good day for you today? What brings you joy and happiness? And so he told me, you know, I, I love talking with my grandkids. I love walking outside and having the sun shine on my face. And he told me, that's what gives me joy and happiness. And then I asked him, well, okay, if you weren't able to talk with your grandkids, if you weren't able to walk outside, you know, what are the sort of things you would or wouldn't want uh, from healthcare? What are your hopes and fears? And what he told me was, look, if I'm not able to interact with my grandkids, if I'm not able to have a conversation with them, then I don't want you to try these extraordinary things that cause a lot of pain and suffering and offer very little in terms of potential benefit, if any. And so that's how the conversation began with him. And then I asked him, you know, what's important to you? What are some of your religious or spiritual beliefs that you want me to bear in mind uh, in the event that I would have to make these, these decisions for you? And so these are the, the first three questions I think that everybody can start. And it doesn't have to be with your doctor. You should start these conversations with your loved ones, with your spouse, with your kids. Uh, and it should be routine. It shouldn't be just a one-off, one time you have this conversation. But things might change over time. So with those basic three questions, it's a start to making sure that you take back your health care. And that comes from deciphering these care objectives that are based on our values, our goals, our, our core beliefs. And that is the great segue into this conversation. What about talking to your doctor and your healthcare providers and knowing yeah, one's options? I think the biggest problem in healthcare is not you know, insurance. It's not um, a lot of things that we read about in the, on the front page of the New York Times. 
the biggest problem in, in healthcare is that doctors don't want to talk about this. Uh, and there's a, a variety of reasons for that. First, many of us were never trained to have this conversation. Uh, you know, I finished medical school and residency, and I had to show competency in how to do a lumbar puncture or how to run uh, a code. But no one ever asked me or trained me on how to talk to patients about this conversation. And so the biggest problem is, yes, you should be talking to your doctor about this, but the fact is most doctors don't want to have this conversation. And so what I did is in my book, I took seven patients that I personally took care of, and I give their stories of what happened at the end of their lives. And what I'm hoping the book does is empower patients, empower people to start this conversation with their doctors because Unfortunately, doctors are not the ones who often start these discussions. No, they are the responders, right? As, as things start to go wrong and shut down, the doctor's job is to save, is to prolong for the most exactly. part. Exactly. Uh, you know, sometimes I think uh, we do a bad job in this country of training our doctors to understand that sometimes, uh, you know, in medical school, we're teaching them the latest and the greatest uh, the next new thing, which is wonderful, right? Modern technology is wonderful. But when it comes to advanced terminal illnesses, sometimes sitting down, slowing down, and listening to the patient, listening to what's important to them, listening to whether quality of life and not quantity of life is what's paramount for them if they have advanced cancer or advanced dementia or advanced heart disease. This is the problem with healthcare today is, we reach for the latest and greatest in terms of technology, but we forget that sometimes the greatest technology in medicine is sitting down and having that discussion with a patient and their family. So it's important for us to be clear as, as individuals what we would like that to look like at the end. Do we want life-prolonging care? Do we want limited medical care? Or do we simply want to be made comfortable Absolutely. And I think it's critically important that people understand what each of those categories are. And that's why in the book, I spent a good deal of time trying to explain to people, here's what your choices are. And there's the three things that you just mentioned, life prolonging care, limited care and comfort care. Um, just to review briefly with life prolonging care, the goal is to prolong life. A doctor would attempt anything uh, available in a modern day hospital. And it's important to know that if you have an advanced illness, many of the things that we would offer often do not have any benefit. The middle category mm -hmm. is basically hospitalization without the intensive care unit or without CPR. It's really focusing on easily treatable illnesses, antibiotics, uh, things along that nature. And the third category, comfort care, is really focusing on comfort, making sure that we address your symptoms and making sure that you are comfortable. Those are the three choices everybody has in America, whether wherever you're located, those are the three general options available to everyone. In your book, The Conversation, you really uh, write this for lay people, for patients, their families, but also I would think a good doctor or nurse might glean a lot from what you have to offer. 
I've been pleasantly surprised, maybe pleasantly shocked, um, <laughs> of the hundreds of emails I've received from doctors, nurses, medical students, chaplains, people who work in the hospital and say, why isn't this required reading of every healthcare professional? You know, when I wrote the book, I wrote it for my dad. I wrote it for people like my parents uh, so that they can understand and navigate this crazy healthcare system we've designed. But what I've been pleasantly surprised at is that many of my colleagues have said this is required reading for any provider, any doctor, nurse, social worker, or chaplain in America who's trying to have this conversation. And so I hope it's read by anybody who has to deal with the healthcare system, which means all of us. And what about educating the education process in our schools? What are the teaching universities and schools doing about educating doctors and other healthcare providers in that empathic, compassionate bedside manner to, to take on not just this issue for end-of-life care, but in terms of relating from a heartfelt place, which also contributes to our healing and our comfort. Yeah, to be honest, if I were to grade where the American medical education system is in terms of teaching empathy, they would get pretty close to an F. Um, we're not doing a good enough job in instilling in our future doctors and nurses that idea of empathy, that idea of understanding what it means to be on the other side of the stethoscope. I think still today we're too focused on the latest and greatest technology, the latest tailored genetic therapy, the latest chemotherapy. And so we cram our students with all these technological miracles, and they are miracles, but we forget to teach them what it means to talk to a patient. And so we need to do a better job. I think that we are starting to realize that. I think over the last few months, uh, end-of-life care has been on the top of everybody's list of things we need to approve in American healthcare. And I'm hoping that my book helps that process along by teaching people, teaching doctors and nurses how to be better communicators, how to understand what it means when you're not wearing the stethoscope, but when you're on the other side of it. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Dr. Angelo E. Volandes. The book is The Conversation. The website is theconversationbook.org. And on Facebook, you can find Angelo at Angelo Volandes. And on Twitter, that handle is at Angelo Volandes. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. 
Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Love is in the air, in the thunder of the sea. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about a subject that you might be very surprised to hear on a show about positive psychology and well-being. But we're talking about end-of-life care and the choices that we have. And with me today is Dr. Angelo E. Bolandes. Angelo has written a wonderful book called The Conversation, which really crosses the great divide in guiding lay people, this is the loved ones of family members who are at the end of their lives, as well as healthcare professionals on ways that we can broach the subject, have that conversation about our individual wishes and desires, how we want the end of our life to be as happy and comfortable as possible. And I know that may sound like an oxymoron, but we're talking about dying well, in essence. Angela, let's talk about that. What does it look like to die well? For me, because I'm often asked that question, what does it mean to die well? Um, What I tell my patients is, I think dying well is dying the way you want to. And what I mean by that is I have the ability to do all these medical procedures that I've been taught over the years, but I also have the ability to honor and respect your choices. Dying well in America today means that the care that a doctor delivers to you at the end of life is aligned or consistent with the type of care that you want. And so if you're a person who has advanced cancer, let's say, and you wanna try every single thing possible and you understand that the chances of benefiting from a lot of the things we do in hospitals when you have an advanced terminal illness are very small, but you still want that, then dying well means that I will give you those procedures. But if you're a person who has advanced cancer and you understand that many of the things we do in healthcare won't help you, and you want to focus on the quality of life, making sure that you're comfortable, making sure that you spend as much quality time with your family, with your kids, and you don't want to be in a hospital, then dying well means that I do my very best to make sure that's the type of care that I deliver to you. What this is all about is honoring and respecting your individual voice to die the way that you want to. That's what it means to die well in America today. And unfortunately, we are utterly failing all Americans today when it comes to care at the end of life. And we as a nation are spending tremendous amounts of money, perhaps some of that focused in the wrong direction, or maybe up until now being focused in the wrong direction, because there's some interesting changes on the horizon with Medicare, is my understanding. Absolutely. Look, if you look at the total budget for healthcare, and when we look at the end of life, there are billions of dollars that are wasted because this is care that we know, first off, doesn't help people when they have an advanced terminal illness. But more importantly to me as a, as a doctor is that a lot of these things, 
If you asked a patient, they would never want. So it's not only costly care, which all of us agree, but it's unwanted care. And that's far more uh, worrisome to me is that all this money is being wasted because people don't even want this. But, you know, there, there is change uh, that's coming. Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Medicare for, uh, for short, um, has decided to start using some of that money to actually pay doctors to sit down, slow down, and actually listen to patients and ask them, what's important to you? What are the, your hopes and fears in terms of medical care? And what do you want your end-of-life care to look like? And so I am hopeful that this will help doctors so that they're not just looking to do these procedures that they're handsomely reimbursed, but that they're actually being paid to actually talk to a patient. Um, unfortunately, today, uh, you know, a lot of doctors are doing all these procedures because that's what Medicare pays us for. Uh, and so uh, you end up doing things without asking patients, is this what you wanted? Do you understand the risks and benefits? And so I'm hopeful that Medicare's new ruling uh, to reimburse doctors will actually change uh, the, the, the habits of doctors so that we could actually sit down and be empathic and, and ask that patient uh, with an advanced illness, you know, what's important to you? What are your hopes and fears? And how can I honor and respect your voice? And we talk about the dollars and cents of this um, from Medicare's perspective and Medicare paying doctors to have that conversation. What does that look like to the doctors where they'll be paid to spend more time with the patients or is it a separate billing code? I'm, I'm having the conversation, you know, check here. What does that look like? Yeah, you know, it's funny, but uh, doctors are, we, we, get, we get schooled. <laughs> we learn quickly how to bill for procedures, right? We bill for right. a lumbar puncture. We bill for a central line. We'll bill for a certain operation. Um, and, and when it comes to discussions, you know, many doctors argue, well, I can't bill for this, so how can I spend time on this? Well, now Medicare is actually going to give you a reimbursement code where you can actually bill for talking to patients. If you asked me personally, I think this is part and parcel of what it means to be a good doctor. If you're not talking to your, your patient, you're a horrible doctor. That's malpractice in my book. But if now you can, you, there's that argument of I'm not being paid for this is not, no longer true. And, you know, we already see this. Doctor, most doctors do want to have this conversation. When we look at doctors in healthcare systems where they're being salaried, in other words, they're not being paid according to how many procedures they do, but they're paid for giving high-quality care, we see that they actually do have conversations. So what Medicare is doing, which is really um, forward-thinking, is let's just get rid of this issue that doctors have of if you're not going to get paid, you're not going to do it, We'll pay you to have the conversation because we think it's really important that you talk to your patients about care at the end of life. And look, even though we're saying end of life, I don't mean end of life. This is good life. Every good life we're necessarily going to die deserves a good ending. So what we're talking about is good life for people towards the end of life. And that good life also includes that good relationship between the doctor and the patient. You know, when we talk about letting go and being ready to take that next step wherever it le leads us, I think having these um, satisfying connections, including with our, including with our healthcare providers, is essential. It is absolutely essential. When I ask patients, what was the most important thing in regards to your healthcare? 
they tell me this over and over. It's my relationship with my doctor. And mm-hmm. so I think doctors across America continue, continue to fail patients by not having these important conversations that really make a bond with your doctor. Your doctor needs to know what's important to you. And I'm hoping that soon these conversations will be the new standard of care, the new normal. How awesome would that be if your doctor actually knew who you were, not just a 72-year-old patient with metastatic cancer, but understood who that person behind that diagnosis is to truly understand you. I think it would be a wonderful American healthcare system if we can reach that goal, reach that dream. Well, it's making unconditional positive regard a, uh, a medical tool. Absolutely. It's harvesting lots of happiness around the country. <laughs> indeed. Indeed it is. And, 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 that's why I love having these kinds of conversations on the show because it, it, this works inversely. We think we're coming to speak about something that is dour, sad, and depressing. And what happens, I find every time is when people get into this conversation that emotions actually rise. It's very true. It's very true. I think um, our expectations of what this conversation might be like quickly vanish after we have it. And all my patients tell me that, uh, you know, I had so much anxiety about having this conversation with you, but after having it, it's like this huge burden has been lifted off my shoulders. It is cathartic. It's, uh, it's wonderful because it's the, one of the few times in life that your voice is heard, it's honored and respected. Indeed. What can we do as a society to increase the frequency of these very necessary conversations? Ooh, that's a that's the billion dollar question. I, I think there's a lot of things we need to start doing in America. The first thing is we need to get rid of this denial of aging and dying. Uh, we've been talking about it for a long time, but no other uh, Western developed country has this issue when it comes to care at the end of life. Uh, people are far more open. If we look to our Northern neighbors, Canada, for instance, they routinely have these conversations. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as a society to start talking more openly about this. Let's not make it a taboo subject. Let's make this the new normal. And if your doctor doesn't talk about it, then you should bring it up. So I think if we empower patients with the tools, with the, their options, with stories to understand what those options are, I think we as a society can move this issue forward by expecting our doctors to start this conversation. And if they don't, we're going to bring it up. And then the other thing I think that uh, will help us as a society change uh, what's happening today is what's going on in Washington. I think that uh, Medicare is slowly giving the financial incentives to help doctors start this conversation and to make it uh, long-lasting. And then I think the third thing is that uh, our medical schools, our residencies need to do a better job of educating our doctors, our nurses, our social workers and chaplains to do the right thing. I truly believe that most people get into medicine, become doctors, become nurses, because they truly want to do what's best for people. But the fact is we educate them and then all of a sudden they become these bearers of technology and forget why they got into this. And we forget that there's a human heart attached to this whole process. And when we uh, connect with that part of ourselves as healthcare providers and just as individuals, we feel safe to begin to talk, to listen well, 
to listen actively, which is an essential ingredient in, in this mix. And that's not something that's taught how to be a good active listener. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but uh, through four years of medical school, three years of residency, four years of fellowship, um, I was never taught to actively listen to my patients. But over the last 15 years of seeing patients, um, I'm slowly learning and appreciating, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to actually listen to your patients. We are out of time, but I want to once again share the book is The Conversation, and this is an essential guide that has long been missing from American medicine. It will embolden patients, inspire doctors to advocate for the choices that promote peace of mind and improve quality of life, because a life well-lived deserves a good ending. To learn more about Dr. Angelo Volandes, please visit theconversationbook.org. And you can find him on Twitter at Angelo Volandes and on Facebook, I believe. Let me find my little cheat sheet here. That's also Angelo Volandes. Angelo, thank you so much for being with us and having a very important conversation about dying well and having a happy ending to the best of our ability and control. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. We'll be right back. Here come those students, and we'll bring on our next guest. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're joining us now for the first time today, um, we are having a very interesting conversation, one that we don't often talk about on the show, although we do like to focus on what it means to die the good death or creating a happy ending for ourselves and those we love. Joining me now is 
Justin Sanders. He is a board-certified family medicine-trained palliative care physician at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and also is Joanna Palladino. She is on faculty in palliative care at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Ariadne Labs. Um, good morning, Joe and Justin. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good Thanks morning. Thank you so much for having us. It is a pleasure. Um, as I mentioned, and as you know, these kinds of conversations about dying the good death are difficult ones to have. And the two of you, in consort with your work at Ariadne's Labs, have really um, come up with a, a methodology to help train healthcare providers, to help have those kinds of conversations with family members and patients. Talk a little bit about the mission at Ariadne Labs and the work that you're doing there. So um, broadly, the mission at Ariadne Labs is really to focus on developing scalable healthcare solutions that produce better healthcare at the most critical moments in people's lives. And those we've defined as um, the time that you're born, um, when you go into surgery, and then, and then the end of life. And our work at, at the Serious Illness Care Program, which is one of, the, um, one of the three focus areas, is to ensure that people with serious illness have meaningful conversations about their goals and priorities in ways that shape the healthcare they receive in the last stages of life. And this is very important work in that when we are confronted with a serious illness, albeit for ourselves or a family member, we don't often think about the factors that we can control. And mm -hmm. I think that the work that you're doing really addresses these psychosocial aspects that are often overlooked. Mm. Yes, absolutely. We've People have um, tremendous capacity for for meaning, um, for purpose, and for accomplishment and for connection, um, even with serious illness, um, in aging, and even if time is shorter than we'd hope. And so because people have priorities besides living longer, our goal at Ariadne Labs has been to create a seven-question conversation guide that focuses on patients' values, goals, and priorities um, to make it easier for all patients, their family members, and clinicians to have these important conversations that focus on more than just treatments and procedures, but also ask questions about patients' fears and worries for the future, the goals and priorities that are most important to them, um, the trade-offs they're willing or not willing to make for the possibility of gaining more time, and the abilities that are so critical to them that they can't imagine living without them. You just mentioned something that I find extremely it's important and interesting is about the, the exchange of buying more time or the trade-off of buying more time. I had a woman in my office um, yesterday who has stage 4 emphysema, and we were having this conversation as it relates to should I put myself in line for a lung transplant? This was the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I smiled. We both smiled because we understood really what, what that was about. And the, the conversation ensued from there. And this is the kind of talk that you're speaking of. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that there's really no right answer to the question, um, or the answer is right for, for any given individual. And I think what 
um, what we need to do is be thinking about it because these questions will inevitably come to us um, or I ideally they'll come to us um, and we'll have to think about um, you know what is the, what are the trade-offs that happen when we decide to pursue treatments to um, you know to live longer whether it be chemotherapy in the setting of cancer which we know can adversely affect quality of life such that some people choose not to have it uh, and um, or more intensive interventions at the end of life such as um, spending time in an intensive care unit and for some families it's really important to um, do everything possible to extend their life to spend every moment um, possible with their family members um, in in states of being that some people may find completely unacceptable um, and so I think that's what we're really trying to encourage physicians and other clinicians to do is ask these questions so that they know the answers because the bias in medicine is very much sort of against these procedures, but there really is no right answer and we're trying to help uh, clinicians see that. And let's talk for a moment about the aging population because we, as we all know, we are all living longer. The, the machines are living longer and I, I, from what I hear you saying and what I see, the need also remains to bring the the quality of life forward. Just because we can keep someone alive doesn't mean we're actually giving them the best of themselves. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, something that we've been so struck and humbled by in this work um, is, is the fact that patients have priorities besides living longer, but we often in the medical community don't do a good enough job of asking about them. So when patients um, are facing hard choices and hard decisions, it's important to think not only about what treatments, um, the hope for a given treatment in terms of time, but also what is the hope for a given treatment in terms of the patient's quality of life? And what does quality of life mean for that particular patient? And also, what is the hope for a given treatment in terms of patient's function? Um, for many patients, living independently, um, being able to provide support for their families um, are critically important to them. But we often don't talk about treatments and procedures um, in relation to these very important factors that patients are and their families are thinking about um, in terms of their lives. And when you look at the, the aging population today, we have more than 70,000 people in the United States who are over the age of 100. Is that correct? That's, that's what, correct. That's correct, yeah. That's, that's an, it's amazing. An, yeah, it's an estimate, but, uh, but we know that that number is going to go up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that's, you know, that we have to pay attention to is the fact that most of these people want to spend as much time as possible at home with their loved ones at the end of their lives. Um, but more than half of people in America die in an institutional setting like a hospital. And nearly one third of people spend their last month of life in the ICU at some point. Um, and, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that people at the end of life want some sense of control and peace, which is exactly the opposite of what you have when you're in an institution. Mm. And I'm thinking about the, the case of ICU where a patient is in there at the end and is really rendered helpless, but mm -hmm. is not. I mean, the, the, in many cases, the mind is still working, and yet 
They are hooked up to uh, machines, tubes, monitoring devices, and the environment is so so controlled and not by the patient, him or herself. Yes. Yes. And so um, you highlight something so important because one of the goals of our work here at Ariadne Labs is to um, support these conversations in happening earlier, before a crisis. Um, we find that in the setting of the ICU or in the hospital, um, patients and families are in highly stressful situations. Like you said, there is a tremendous lack and loss of control, which is very difficult. And um, it's very difficult to think clearly, if not impossible, in those situations. So by starting conversations about patients' goals and priorities, their wishes and hopes for their care earlier, and by um, helping patients discuss these important issues with their families, uh, we are hoping to improve um, the experience that Justin mentioned before that um, or ordinarily happens at the end of life. And the experience that you described with um, patients um, in the ICU. Well, this conversation is very timely in, in our household. We have a 90-year-old aunt that's staying with us from back east. And I was speaking with her last night about the conversation. You know, we were having the conversation. I'm considerably younger than she is. I have teenage children. And we were all sort of talking about this subject matter. And it was very heartwarming to me that while we all have our faculties, while we all are in a calm place that we could sit and talk about what, what would this look like and why is this conversation sh so important? And she said to me, the, the my 90-year-old aunt, she says, it's really important to just be comfortable and be around your things, you know, and not feel as though you've been completely stripped of your life at the end. Yeah. I mean, as you know, as a clinician who takes care of patients in the hospital, sometimes um, who have been there for, you know, many weeks, um, you, I see that a lot, uh, that sometimes the most important thing becomes just getting home. I mean, sometimes people say they just wish they could go home for a few hours for exactly that reason, just to be comforted by their things. It's a major, uh, it's a major issue of quality of life that we don't really think about until it's thrown into relief by an institution like the hospital. In a moment, we are going to go to a break, and I want to urge our listeners to visit the Ariadne website at ariadnelabs.org, and that's A-R-I-A-D-N-E labs.org, to learn more about the uh, program and the, and the conversation guide that you have developed at the Serious Illness Care Program. Um, but before we do, I wanted to ask both of you, how you got into this work? What drew you into this facet of healthcare? Because it is very particular and it takes a certain kind of sensitivity to want to address these issues. Sure. Um, so I came to this work through uh, my personal experience with serious illness about four and a half years ago when I was seven months into my fellowship in palliative care. I was diagnosed with acute leukemia, and I was out of work for two years receiving an intensive treatment of chemotherapy and radiation. And during that time, I was incredibly humbled um, by the suffering. Um, 
experienced related to the treatment and the illness, and also really by the suffering that my family and close friends and loved ones um, experienced right along with me. Um, at the same time, I was also struck by the, um, the capacity for, um, for dignity, um, for purpose, um, for accomplishment um, during the experience of serious illness. And fundamentally, it moved me to action. Um, the conversation guide that our program developed um, and created and are, and, um, and are testing currently, um, I was actually given a copy of that um, just a few weeks out of my treatment. That was my first um, insight into this program. And my husband, Savan, and I um, had the conversation um, using the questions. And it because of the structure, because of the questions which were developed with the perspective of patients, their caregivers, family members, and clinicians, um, it somehow allowed us the safety to talk about really hard things and allowed um, what at times for both of us, and we're both doctors, what at times for both of us had been unspeakable um, to be spoken. And it encouraged me to share that with my oncology team. And so um, just personally, I was moved to ensure that all people with serious illness have the opportunity to have conversations about their goals and their values. Well, that certainly puts it in perspective and, and makes it very, very personal. And I appreciate you you sharing this, this story, uh, John. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to get Justin's perspective um, of what brought him to this work. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. And once again, you can visit ariadneylabs.org to learn more about the seven-question serious illness conversation guide. We'll be right back. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. 
end-of-life care and really specifically how to have conversations with our family, with our loved ones about our desires for a happy ending, what it means to die with dignity, with peace, um, and controlling those factors that we can. And we're talking with doctors Joe Palladino and Justin Sanders. They are palliative care doctors at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, as well as researchers at Ariadne Labs, and they're talking with us about uh, a seven-part serious illness conversation guide that has been developed to help healthcare providers and family members have this kind of dialogue in in an open, heartfelt manner. But before we go back to that part of the conversation, I want to ask Justin how he came to this work in palliative care. So um, like many, I think like many of us, uh, Joe included, we were brought somehow to this work through uh, an experience with someone with serious illness. For me, it was uh, um, my oldest friend, in the, oldest friend really, who died of ovarian cancer at the age of 21, and I had the privilege of, of being there. Uh, and that sort of um, was a gift to me in terms of uh, realizing that I had sort of comfort working in this area. I think what, what brought me to this program at Ariadne Labs was really my experience working in underserved communities uh, in the Bronx, New York, um, and really seeing the inequity that uh, that exists in the care of people with serious illness, not just in, in access to care, but also as um, as life approaches its inevitable end, and and how we one of the ways I think we can improve equity um, for underserved populations in the U.S. Uh, is around improving the way that doctors communicate with them about the things that matter most. Uh, and so that's really why what brought me to this work at Ariadne Labs. And so um, my work specifically is aimed at uh, looking at uh, the cultural appropriateness of this conversation guide in various communities. You also um, are an editor, correct? You're the editor of an online narrative medicine journal called Pulse? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm one of the I'm a, I'm the one of the editors um, of Pulse uh, Voices from the Heart of Medicine, which is a an online narrative medicine journal, and uh, that really focuses on highlighting the experiences of people um, across the spectrum of healthcare uh, and, and in their experiences in healthcare. And we focus on visual arts and uh, poetry and prose, and so. Um, in some ways, that is a, a, a counterpoint to this work because it really is a is a, a different type of reflection on on similar experiences. And Joe, the work that you do with Ariadne, um, you you help develop strategies to spread the serious illness care program. Yes, that's correct. Um, we are testing the the intervention currently at Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And we've seen very strong preliminary results. Um, but one of um, part of our mission here at Ariadne Labs is that, as a medical community, when we find interventions or treatments that can improve both outcomes and the experience of patients, it often takes a long time for them to reach all of the patients who would benefit. So part of part of my role here is to really learn how best to take 
this intervention, which combines the conversation guide and the training of health professionals on how to use the guide with other systematic processes to encourage more, better, and earlier conversations. Um, how to take this intervention and adapt it to other healthcare settings, to additional patient populations, so that it can reach all patients who, with serious illness who could benefit from conversations about their goals and priorities. And it's my understanding that the through this systematic approach, it's not only having the conversation, but how to integrate the results of that conversation into the patient's medical records. So it's a little bit more seamless than having, you know, stopping and starting, correct? That's correct. What um, we, what we, our, our sort of philosophy is that um, although the training and the conversation guide are critically important, um, they're not enough on their own. And so we've developed a systematic approach that includes identifying patients with serious illness, um, reminding clinicians to initiate the conversations at the appropriate time before a crisis, um, as well as materials that prepare patients and support patients and families to continue these conversations at home, and also a, a place in the medical record that actually mirrors the questions on the conversation guide to document the conversation as what we call a single source of truth so that all clinicians who take care of the patient have access to um, the patient's values, goals, and priorities. And I think this is the critical piece of this. You know, it makes it really, it has the ability to make it seamless in an ideal setting. Yeah, unfortunately, we we don't work in an ideal setting. That would be the <laughs> <laughs> really. Um, I think that highlights one of the most important things, which is that you know it, it is true that we have to find some way of getting this information into um, a health record such that it can be seen by multiple providers at multiple points of care. Because um, when a primary care doctor, for instance, has this conversation with their patient, um, if it doesn't get to a place. Um, such that the ER physician can access it when the patient comes into the ER after a, you know an, uh, an emergency or a crisis of some type, then it's essentially not useful information. When it becomes useful information is when it's communicated, when it's subsequently communicated to family members. And I think one of the greatest potential um, advantages of this approach is that it really models for patients how to have these conversations with their family members because when a crisis occurs, um, it's the family member who you've selected and spoken to about your wishes that's going to make the biggest difference in your care. Just as in the opposite situation, when a doctor has a conversation with a patient and it goes into the medical record, but a family member hasn't heard it, it's very easy for a family member to come in and say, whoa, 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 this isn't exactly what we, what we wanted. And they may not know the patient's wishes. I, I, I agree. Um, let's talk about the upside of this or the happier side is that what we're really speaking of is not how to die, but it's how to live. And when we begin to focus on how we want to live, whether it's in crisis or not, we not only gain control, but we also begin to become more mindful. It teaches us something about how to be. That's what I see. Yes, that's absolutely true. 
Um, we found in the early results from our randomized trial that two-thirds of patients who have this conversation report positive behavior change. And what patients are reporting are, are not, it, it, it doesn't focus on the medical treatments that they do or do not receive. It is about improved communication with their family members, strengthening relationships with the people they love and with their doctors and nurses um, who are having these conversations. Um, patients have renewed focus on achieving personal goals, whether it is taking a trip up to um, Maine or Vermont or attending a wedding. Um, they're having um, a renewed focus on what matters most to them and their families. And so that has been what we have been most struck by with this work is that patients are reporting the impact it's having not only on their medical treatments, but also on their lives. And that is um, part of the reason that we're both doing this work. And I guess the next question is how do we teach our healthcare providers, our doctors and our nurses and, and people who are in training you know, in the medical field where, it, where we all are headed towards a longer, more productive life, how do we teach them the art of conversation in this way to bridge this kind of discussion in an empathic, kind-hearted way? Because we, we need to learn it. I mean, it's not second nature, these yeah. communication skills. No, it's absolutely not. And, um, you know, that's the million dollar question. I think, how do we, how do we do this? And it's the question that we're trying hardest to answer. How do you train doctors to have this conversation? Because as you agree, as you said, we aren't trained to have them and, um, we need to start training doctors to have them. And in order to start training doctors to have them, we need to build the evidence to show that it works. And so that's really what we're um, engaged in very heavily right now. And, um, and we hope to show that this approach um, really teaches doctors to, as I say, often say, to speak like a human again, um, because I think that's you know it's these, it's these it's these human relations and these human questions that are really have the potential to affect medical care in a way um, that really positively shapes the way people live. And Justin and I also. Um we both trained, you know, in the same palliative care fellowship, and and what we're trying to do in our trainings of health professionals, um, which is it's actually a short training. It's two and a half hours focused on the seven question guide, but we're also distilling important practices and principles that palliative care um, really uses that palliative care clinicians are trained to do and use on a daily basis into something that other clinicians can use to make these conversations easier. Um, for example, um, the use of silence. So listening more than talking, we train clinicians to listen to, uh, to talk less than 50% of the time. And that's actually very hard to do. Um, we train clinicians to focus on goals and priorities rather than what is more natural, which are treatments and procedures. And also to use open-ended questions to explore patients' emotions and to acknowledge patients' emotions because at the heart of this, these are emotional um, conversations. And we are trying to distill really important palliative care practices into something that can make it easier for patients, families, and health professionals. We are out of time, and I 
would love to continue this conversation and we will at an, we will have you back and and, and carry on at, at another point and i want to thank uh joe paladino and justin sanders for being with us on the show today to learn more about the work that they are doing at ariadne labs please visit ariadnelabs.org and once again this is the serious illness conversation guide um, you can learn more about that program at Ariadne Labs. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and my amazing guest today, Doctors Joe Palladino, Justin Sanders, and Angelo Volandes. Wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a great day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week... Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.